Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, 9, 14, and 17 through 21. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. So good morning. My name is Drew, one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We continue this morning in a series that we've been doing for a number of months from this letter that Paul wrote to the Roman Christians. And we've come to this part here in Romans chapter 12 where he has just begun to, in rapid fire, uh, lay out the implications of the gospel that he's been preaching in the first 11 chapters. Now, we would do well to remember that his goal in writing this letter to them, and I think the, the goal in it being handed down to us, is what he refers to at the very beginning of the letter and also at the end as the obedience of faith. Paul is after the obedience of faith. The byproduct of the gospel message is an obedient people who become the gospel in their relationships with one another. That is what all of Romans 1 through 11 is about. It is what Romans 12 through 16 is describing, this obedience that comes from faith, or this obedience that requires faith. Another way of saying it would be to say that what Paul describes here, particularly in these verses, only Christians can do this. Only a person with a new heart can act this way that's being described here. It's too hard to do by yourself. You have to be supernaturally changed and then empowered to do uh, what you read about here. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, don't read Romans 12 and think, okay, I've got to do all of this stuff and then I'm a Christian. No, that's, that's not it at all. You have to become a Christian first before you can even think about doing any of this because it takes being a Christian to do it. If you're not a Christian, what this should do is it should drive you to faith. You should think, man, if that's what a Christian is, I'll never be one because I can't do that. And that's actually the first step of faith, to know you've got nothing. And then what you do with that is you take your nothing and you bring it to God so that he can do what must be done for you. And then by the power of the Spirit, begin to do what needs to be done in you. And that really is the movement that we're, this is what this text should really drive us to, to say, holy cow. Uh, if that is what being a follower of Jesus is, Lord, help. Lord, help. Because really, loving those who love you is hard enough, isn't it? Anybody else? You know? I mean, the people who are nice to you, the people that you know, or you know, your family and your friends, and those people that really do a fairly good job of caring for you and loving you, it's hard enough to love those people. But this says, 
Notice what this says. It says that if you really believe the gospel, it will make you a person who is able to love to the degree that you love even an enemy. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, you know, it's easier to give up everything and go right off to the heart of Africa as a missionary or to the beautiful parts of France or wherever it might be. It's, it, he said, it's much easier to do that than it is to do this. But this is the heart of Christianity. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is the defining characteristic of someone who's been marked by the grace of God. And so if you want to test your faith, which it's good to do from time to time, if you want to know where you stand, the question you ask, I think the Bible says, is this. Do I love people well? How am I doing loving people? That's really, that's really the question that, that tests your faith the most. Now go one step further, and I think the question that's put before us that we need to contemplate together this morning is, do I love my enemies? How am I doing, what do I do with people who are hard to love? Do I have that kind of spiritual power coursing through my life to be a person who loves people who are being awful to me with the same kind of uh, power and energy that I do the people who are being nice? Dorothy Day famously said, I only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. And it's worth considering because I think it's true. And so if, if we're going to get a handle on some of this, there are really three things that we need to consider this morning together. The first thing we got to do is we've got to define what Paul means here by an enemy. We've got to know the enemy. If we're called to love an enemy, we need to know who the enemy is. Then we need to, secondly, repent of the wrong way that we react to an enemy, which is the most natural way. Uh, and we've got to understand why it's wrong. It's wrong for a couple of reasons to react the way we would naturally do. And then thirdly, we want to see what the right way to respond to and react to an enemy is, and just ask the question, how in the world do we become people who start to act that way towards people who hurt us? So know the enemy, repent of the wrong way to react to an enemy and why, and then the right way to react to an enemy and how, and that's all here in the text. So let's just start together. Okay, first by this idea of we have to know, we have to know who the enemy is. And actually... I would say before you can know who, who is an enemy, you have to know what evil is. There's even a bigger issue. And it's really an emphasis in the text that we've not really dealt with as we've walked through Romans 12. I kind of regret that. Uh, you have to be able to discern good from evil and hate what is evil and cling to what is good. That's verse 2. And verse 9, Paul's saying one of the consequences of, of becoming a person with a new heart, of having an ex radical experience of God's grace in Christ is that it, it changes your definitions and your values and you begin to be a person who's able to discern between what is good and what is evil so that you hate the one and you, and you love the other appropriately. The problem with a lot of our ideologies, the problem with our politics and our culture uh, these days is that they very clearly divide people up between good and evil, right? And it's us, we're the good people, and they, they're the bad people. So we're trained to look at the other side, at the other side of the aisle, at the other group that's different than us, at the other party or whatever the case might be, and to see only evil in them and then to look at ourselves and to see only good in us. This is how we're trained. So uh, Alexander Schultzenitsen, aren't you impressed I got that right? Twice I got that right. I'm so excited. I would spell it, but it would take too long. There's a lot of consonants there. But he wrote this. He said, he said, if only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. He said, but the dividing line, the line dividing good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, 
nor between political parties, but right through every human heart. And so in the evil that I might be trying to confront in others, there's always some remnant of dignity and goodness. And, and we've got to remember that. I've got to remember that always. Whatever evil I'm confronting, I have to remember as I'm doing it, there is some shred, some shred of dignity and goodness there because everybody's made in the image of God. But as I do so, I might feel like I'm full of good intentions. I'm the guy in the white hat, right? I'm the good guy. But we need to remember that there's always selfishness and fear and sinful, sinful anger mixed in. And, we, and, and that's an important part. Both of those are an important part of being able to discern good from evil to know how to respond appropriately to these things. Miroslav Volf, a Croatian pastor and theologian, he pointed out how ready we are, and here are his words, to exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as we exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. And that's a real problem. So every ideology, every political party, every religious denomination, they're all fallen. They're all a mix of right and wrong, of good and bad. And we need to know that. Or we won't even be able to get to the work that's coming next. So is every person. And a consequence of that is that it broadens the category of enemy that Paul's describing for us here. So an enemy goes from being just a person on the other side of the aisle to something different, to something more. Instead, what I want to contend with you this morning, just to help us, and this will really narrow what we're going to look at, I want to say, when Paul starts to describe an enemy here, he's just describing how someone's treating you. Paul Miller, who, who wrote The Person of Jesus Study, says that an enemy is a person who interprets everything you do and say through a negative grid. Let me say it again. It's a person who interprets everything you say and do through a negative grid. No matter what you do, they arrive at a negative conclusion. They don't see the mix of bad and good in you, which is there in all of us. They only see bad, and so they harden their heart against you. That's an enemy. If you want an illustration, think of King Saul and David in the Old Testament, if you remember that story. King Saul had been given the kingdom, and then because of his disobedience, the Lord had said, I'm going to take it from you and give it to someone else. And here was this upstart that everyone loved named David. And David was a man of character. He, he loved Saul and his family. Jonathan was his best friend. He wanted Saul's kingdom to flourish. He really was. He fought for Saul. He did everything he could, and yet no matter what David did, no matter what he did, Saul looked at him and he believed he wanted his throne uh, David was an incredible friend of Saul, right? He even had a, if you remember, there's a story, he even had the opportunity to kill Saul and he wouldn't do it because he just loved this man. And no matter what David did, Saul saw him as a rival and he treated him. He said, you know what, that guy's out for me and he hated him and he sought his life really for no reason because he had made David an enemy. He had become an enemy to David and he started to interpret everything David did. You know what, see, he, was, he fought hard because he wants the crowd's approval or whatever the case might be. And that's really what you have here being described. This, this, a person who interprets everything that you say or do through a negative grid. And what that means is, is it means that anyone can become an enemy. Paul Miller even uses the category, he talks about a, a temporary enemy. So even in marriage, if things are going well, you know, because of sin, it can get in there. And all of a sudden, you can be relating well to one another. And then something happens, there's a bump in the road, and you slip into temporary enemy status with one another. Where you begin to really view everything the person is doing negatively and, you know, with suspicion. Or it can happen in friendship, or it can happen in parenting children. You with me? 
Now, all the parents with young children are in the first service. When I said that, they were like, mm, and I just said, wait a minute. And then if you have, just wait until you have teenagers, and then you'll understand what I'm talking about. Right? Your kids can slip into thinking, you know, they, they're interpreting everything you say negatively. It can happen in projects at work. We can slip into enemy status, even in the best of relationships. And so you know you have an enemy when, no matter what you do, the other person interprets it as selfishness. You try to help. But, but they think, right, that you're out to get them. And sometimes in relationships where there's sin, and it's unavoidable because we're going to do it to one another all the time, what happens is, is it can create emotional distance that, and hurt that can calcify into bitterness and unforgiveness, and it sets you against the other person. So when I'm talking to somebody, and believe it or not, it happens, on a semi-regular basis, I'm talking to somebody and they start accusing me of things that are completely wrong. I mean, it's just obvious to me they've completely missed my heart, whether, whether it's that I've been selfish and they're picking up on that, but it's been, or I've just been clumsy, you know, whatever the case might be, I think, okay, okay, I've got an enemy here. You know, I, I got an enemy here. So what do I do? And this is the text. This is the text for dealing with people who hate you and are set against you, which means it's also a marriage text, okay? And it's a friendship text, and it's a community group text, because this is what happens to us in our relationships sometimes. So a couple of questions for us to ponder as we move uh, further into our time together this morning. The first thing I would ask you is this. Have you allowed yourself to become an enemy? Is there someone in your life who has hurt you or just someone you disagree with. But what's happened is, is you've hardened your heart. And now you have a hard time seeing the good in them. If so, it's a sure sign that the evil you see in the other person is actually having its way with you. That's what the text says. That you've, that you've become, you know, you're being overcome by evil. Have you allowed yourself to become an enemy to where there's somebody, for whatever reason, you can't stop just viewing everything negatively towards that person with suspicion and critique? But secondly, do you have an enemy? Do you have an enemy? Is there someone in your life, no matter what you do, they think you're out to get them, whether it's your spouse or a friend or a coworker or child? What do you do? Well, that's what this text is about. And what we learn is, is that there is a natural response that really happens to all of us when we find that we have a person like this in our life. Uh, and the natural response is the wrong response. And so naturally, we can infer from the text that what we typically do is we're, we're prone to respond to someone being awful to us or mean to us in kind. We are prone to want to repay, an eye for an eye, right? An eye for an eye. So, and if you're a follower of Jesus, then you're simply not allowed to live this way. That's what this text says. Look at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, Paul says. I mean, it's very clear. I mean, that, that, that stands on its own, and it really stops us in our tracks, doesn't it? Because what we do, we naturally do unto others as they have done unto us. Let me say that again. We naturally do unto others as they have done unto us. But that's not the golden rule. It's a distortion of the golden rule. The golden rule actually says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so if someone's mean to you, it's hard not to mean back, mean, be mean back, isn't it? I mean, if, somebody is, if somebody's rude, it's hard not to be rude. If somebody honks their horn at you in traffic, it's hard not to lay on yours, right? 
If somebody talks bad about you to a friend, the normal thing is to talk bad about them in return. But because when you're hurting, because of someone else, someone else's sin or someone else's just neglect, when you're hurting, what you want is you want the person who hurt you to hurt like you do. Because it's one of the only things that makes it feel good. And that's what it means to curse someone. Uh, look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and you not curse them. Okay, this isn't like Harry Potter voodoo magic stuff, okay? This is not like go to a witch doctor in the French Quarter in New Orleans. And that's not what, that's not what this is talking about. Of course, but I mean, that kind of is what it's talking about, but not. What this means is, is uh, when, if you're cursing someone, it means that, that for whatever reason, there is in you a desire for bad things to happen to them. You want them to feel pain. You, you want them to feel the pain you're feeling. You want it to go bad for them. You really want the Lord to just get them, right? Make them pay. You want to see them cry. And it's natural to feel this way. But listen, it's evil. It's, it's sinful, a sinful response to being sinned against. And there are different ways. There are different ways we do this to one another, okay? Uh, let me just mention a few. We do it. We, we, we desire to see people pay, uh, and we repay people in, in a number of ways. We do it through avoidance, whether it's emotional distance or literally just removing them from your life. And, I mean, if you're trying to be my friend, you got to know this is what I do, by the way. I'm a flight person, not a fight, not a fight person. I'm a, I'm a I, you know, I have a doctorate degree in writing people off. I'm confessing this, okay? I'm, I'm just, you're laughing at my sin. You guys did too. I, this is because of my story, some other things. This is what I do. But what I had to learn and what I had to really wrestle with and repent of this week is, I mean, I do it with my family, with the people I love the most. I do it with people all the time. I can just say, you know what? I'm out of here. Uh, and it's a way of getting revenge, of making them pay for whatever thing I'm aggravated about. We do it through unforgiveness, I mean, here's what I, I see something I see all the time. People say, you know, well, I've forgiven them, but then they continue to relate to the person on the basis of the sin they say they've forgiven. They say they forgive, but then they keep a record of the sin, uh, you know, and they, and they relate to the person on the basis of the hurt and not on the basis of, of the grace that is, that is ours in Christ. And this is really what turns a friend into an enemy over time. There's some offense and instead of forgiving, you hold on to it, and it begins to color your perception of the other person so that you begin to interpret everything about them through the lens of suspicion because of that hurt that's back there. And it's a way, what we need to know, what we need to forsake, is it's a way of making people pay. It's a way of keeping them in jail for their crimes. When what the word forgiveness means is it means to let them go, to set them free, to unlock the door. And then, of course, I mean, those are the subtle ways, right? Those are the crafty ways. And then there's just flat open war. Gossip, smear campaigns, and even violence. And here Paul's saying, you know, this may be natural. It may be the way that we are most tempted to respond, but it is the wrong way to react. And it's the wrong way to react for a couple of reasons. And I want you to see in the text what the text says. For, the one, for one, it is wrong for us to react in this way because it is not our place. So look at verse 19. Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So when you, 
uh, man, this is hard. I mean, this whole sermon's hard, okay? But this is hard. When, when, you, um, when you seek revenge, whether it be by avoiding or by just withholding forgiveness, by, by just in making sure you stay connected to the stuff that people's done to you in the past and, and just causing them to pay through, you know, your, your avoidance or just your anger or whatever the case might be, when you seek revenge, you're taking the place of judge, and to take the place of judge is to take the place of God. And that is pride. It's, it's the essence of sin. What we're being told here is that this is God's work, not ours. And it's God's work, not ours, because we're sinners. Only God is holy. Only he is just. Only he is qualified for the work of justice. I mean, it's unbelievably arrogant and delusional and foolish to think that our justice is just. It's not. We're biased. You with me? We're selfish, especially when someone's hurt you. When you're hurt, you don't see straight. You, you can't see straight. You can't see past your hurt. But with God, God's wrath is never vindictive. Ours is. His wrath is always judicial. It's always controlled and appropriate and perfect. Now, the text is not saying to us when someone hurts us or when we find that we have someone who's an enemy, it's not saying just get over it. After all, grace, right? Grace. No. No, that's not, that's not the argument at all. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying don't forget justice. There is wrath. It is coming, but it doesn't come from you. That's not your job. Nobody's going to get away with anything. God will repay. He sees every wrong. And he said he will make every wrong right. He will dispense judgment. But if he's going to do so, then we don't have to. We can be in the mercy business. That's what the text means. Not our place. It's not our place to act this way. We're taking the place of God, which is the essence of sin. And we're just going to make a mess of things. But then secondly... This is the wrong way to react because not only is it not our place, but look at the outcome it produces. It goes on to say here that if, if you repay evil for evil, the result is the escalation of evil. What's happening to you is, verse 21, you're, being, you're actually being overcome by the evil. The evil that has been done to you is now passed into you and it's having its way with you. If you repay evil with evil instead of kindness... You're adding sin to sin. You're multiplying sin. And on and on and on it goes. Do you see? And so instead, we are to meet evil with good. That's the kind of people we're to be. We're to meet sin with forgiveness and love. That's what destroys sin. That's the only thing that destroys sin. You know, meeting sin with, with sin just perpetuates sin. Do you see? But it's kindness that leads to repentance, the Bible says. God's kindness and then ours to one another. And so we are to be a people who wherever we meet with evil, what comes out of us is love and goodness and kindness. Now, we do need to say one thing before we move on, and that is that, you know, there are times when to keep loving an enemy becomes dangerous. Think of case, cases of abuse or just really, really dysfunctional relationships, friendships, you know, parent-child relationships, physical and emotional abuse, these sorts of things. What them? Are there any limits? And this is where I think, verse 18, if you, there's, a, there's a little caveat that Paul makes that's so, so helpful to us. It really is, it puts a lot of this in the category of wisdom where there's a lot of gray area in a lot of what he's saying to us here. And it's just in verse 18 where, where he just says this. He says, repay no one evil for evil, verse 17. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. And it means that there will be times when you've done all you can, Right? 
you stay in the relationship, you keep forgiving, nothing changes, and, and you're being damaged in the process. Then, then Paul says, blessing and doing good to the other person doesn't mean you just keep doing what you've done. It may mean that you stop letting them sin against you. It's not loving to another person to enable their sin. It's not loving to them to allow them to continue to sin against you in the way that they are. And so Romans 12, 9 really is the boundary where Paul says, abhor what is evil, don't excuse it, don't allow for it. And so as we work these things out, know that there, there's a lot of wisdom that we need. There's a lot of gray area that we've got to wrestle through here, but know that, 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 that there, that's there, okay? Nevertheless, repay no one evil for evil. But then third, so if that's the wrong response, and if we see why, then what is the right response? And the right response we're taught here is that we're to love and to forgive with the heart of Jesus, that we are to be people empowered by his grace to show the same grace that we've been shown. Here is the gospel truth. We were God's enemies, and he loved us, and he sent his son the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be forgiven and reconciled to him. Jesus did not die for righteous people. Amen? That's an amen. Okay. Hello. Jesus did not die for righteous people. He did not die for good people. That's not who we are. You with me? So that's not who we love. We don't just love those who love us. Anybody can do that. We don't just do good to those who do good to us in return. There's no, this is Luke 6, there's no benefit in that. And that word in Luke 6, if you look back at, at the call to worship or that we read a little while ago, the word there that's it's unfortunate, it's translated benefit. The word there is grace. Jesus is saying there's no grace in loving those who love you. That's just normal. That's just what everybody does. But we are a people of grace. And if you're a Christian, you've been shown grace. God loved you best when you were at your very worst. And what we're told in Romans 6 is that grace actually comes into our life to reign, meaning it comes to unlock our hearts to love others at their very worst in ways that we would otherwise not be able to do in our own strength. So people of grace not only love those who love them, but they love those who are mean to them. And if you've been marked by God's grace, then loving your enemy at some point, becomes to be the most natural thing in the world to do. And Paul goes on to say, what, explain positively what it means to do this. Look, uh, look at um, verse 14 and then down in verses 19 through 21. Here's really the meat of the text. It's, he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but to the contrary, instead. In other words, don't do, do this instead. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so the first thing, Paul says, is that before you do anything else, the first thing you have to do is you have to work on your own heart until you desire the good of the other person. You have to want good things for them. That's the word blessed. Remember, curse is to want them to cry, to want them to feel pain. But this word blessed means just that, that you really are for the other person, even though they've hurt you and you're, and you're in pain and it makes you sad, you still have this sense in your, in your life that you really do want good things for them. Paul says if you have an enemy, someone who's been really awful to you, the first thing is you've got to be for them. You've got to want good things for them. You've got to desire, you've got to desire their repentance. You remember the story of Jonah, the prophet in the Old Testament, who the Lord 
called to go and preach to the city of Nineveh, this awful people who, have pers- who had persecuted Jonah and his, and his countrymen. And Jonah went, and he went because he thought, if I, if, if I preach uh, the destruction of the city, then maybe God will do what he said. And, but if you know the story, uh, he preached about God's judgment, and they repented, and God had mercy on them instead, and Jonah just threw a pity party. I mean, he grieved their repentance. Think about that. Why? He did what the Lord told him to do, but he didn't have a heart for the city. He didn't have a heart for those people. He wanted justice. He wanted God to smite them because they deserved it. And they got mercy instead. And he, I can't say the things I want to say, but I mean, he like lost his mind. Like he lost his faith. It messed him up. And so can you look at the people in your life who've really hurt you and not want them to hurt, but instead hope for good for them. That's what the Bible means by forgiveness. It is a change of attitude towards the person, a softening of your heart, excuse me, towards them, where you don't demand payment, you don't hold on to your anger, you turn the other cheek, which means something like you remain emotionally vulnerable with them, you don't become hard-hearted, but you keep risking love with them, and then, and this is every time Paul or Jesus talks about how to relate to an enemy. And so in Matthew 6 and Luke 6, here in Romans 12, he says, what you do, you, 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 there's a certain strategy you employ. And the strategy is, is that you get busy proactively loving them by meeting their physical needs. I mean, you see it here. Paul Miller is the one who first taught me this. He noted that in the Bible's wisdom in dealing with someone who's interpreting everything through a negative grade, he says, here's what you gotta do. You gotta first do the work on yourself to have a soft heart towards them. He says, then you should pray for them. Then what you do is you do the work of incarnating with them and find out what their needs are. Find out where they're sad and lonely and scared and afraid and where they really do need help. And then you do everything you can to meet their physical needs, feed them and clothe them and serve them in whatever way possible. But he said, notice what you don't do, what it doesn't say. It doesn't say use words. The best way to love someone who's interpreting everything you do through a negative grid is to love them without words. Fewer words, more good deeds. And so he says, feed them, clothe them, do whatever you got to do to to take care of them. Because the problem is, is they don't know that you're for them. They don't know you have a heart for them. And so you got to do stuff that shows them that you have a heart for them. Uh, Ashley and I do this with our kids all the time. It's one of our strategies of parenting when we sense their hearts becoming hard towards us. Because, I mean, you know, we get into, and Canaan's the only one in here this morning, but we get into these kind of nonstop parenting tirades where it's just one parental lecture after another, right? You know what I'm saying? And you can just kind of see the kids kind of going, you know, wilting in front of us, particularly as they get older and you realize, you know, you only have like six months to get all of the parental stuff into them that you need to. And you got to do that, right? You got to do that. But the problem is, is you really can turn a teenager into an enemy. And so, so what we'll do is we'll notice, we'll just, we really do try to pay attention to that. And, and, um, and then when, we've, when we sense that they've just started to really not respond well to our correction or to doubt our heart for them, we'll just change the strategy and we'll just start to serve them. Ashley's great at that she'll do their chores for them um, when we normally make them do that, or we'll buy them something that they, we know they've been wanting, or we'll go and check them out of school and just have lunch with them and let them skip a test they weren't prepared for or something like that, right? I mean, just because we, what we're trying to do is to say this work is so hard that we've got to make sure our hearts stay connected to one another. And the work of parenting doesn't go so well unless your heart's connected. 
And so when we sense, you know what, they don't know we're for them, then we just stop all the parenting and we make sure they know we're for them. That's exactly what Paul's saying here. He said, when you have an enemy, listen, when you have an enemy, stop trying to teach them. Hello, hello. Can we stop doing so much of that? I mean, like there is no, I promise, there is no Facebook post that you and your infinite wisdom is gonna come up with in the next three days that's gonna all of a sudden unlock people's stupidity on Facebook, okay? It's just not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. We need to stop doing so much of that and start doing more of this. And it also tells us here why it's such a great strategy. It says, as you do this, verse 20, you heap burning coals on their heads. And what in the world does that mean? It means when somebody sins against you, because, listen to this, this is, this is helpful to me. When somebody sins against you because they're made in the image of God and because they have a conscience, one of the things that immediately begins to happen to them is they start to look for reasons why they were right to treat you the way they did. And when you respond in evil to their evil, they say, see, uh-huh, yep, see, they deserve, they deserve this. And so they have to double down on their own moral superiority. So when you don't respond in kind, when instead you meet their meanness with kindness, what it does is it forces them to stop and say, oh, wait a minute. I mean, maybe it's me. Maybe, maybe I'm the one with the problem here, not them. If you respond to evil with evil, you incite more evil. If you respond to evil with goodness and kindness, you highlight their evil. And the burning coal's image is an image of shame and embarrassment even that leads the other person to repentance. And that's what we want, right? That's what we want, right? So how? I gotta be done. How? And the short answer is this, is that the only way to live like this is to have been marked by God's love and not the other person's hate. To, to stop sourcing our love for one another in the way we're treating one another and instead in God's love for us in Christ. Uh, you know, at some point when you have an enemy, when there's a relationship that's wonky and sideways and you just can't seem to stop, you know, viewing one another negatively, and so, at some point you gotta come to the place where the way God loves us in Jesus on the cross means more to us than the failure of the person that we're so upset with does where we're marked more by what God has done for us in Christ than we are by the letdowns and, and the, the sins of other people against us. Now, naturally, we source our love in one another. I love you because you love me. I love you as long as you love me. And the problem comes that when you're not doing such a good job of loving me, if the jumper cables of my heart are attached to your heart for me, then when your love wanes, mine does too. And it happens in marriage, it happens in friendship, all the time, and it's actually idolatry. The Bible calls it the fear of the Lord, fear, the fear of man. It's looking to people for the love and security that God can only give. And so the energy for love comes from the way I've been loved in this setup. But Paul here, here he's describing something entirely different. He says it's possible to love those who are doing a good job loving you, and also to have the same emotional energy to love those who hate you because there's a similar there's a, there's another power source. There's something else besides the way the person's treating you that you can connect your life to. And so you can't forget the statement at the beginning of the chapter. It's why we went back and picked it up, Romans 12, 1. Therefore, brothers, I appeal to you, what? In view of God's mercies. It's the foundation of all the rest that, that, that Paul has to say here. And right in the middle of this passage, if you look in verse 19, he's saying, repay no one for evil, for evil, live peaceably with one another. And then verse 19, he starts 
Uh, I love it. Right in the middle of the passage, he says, beloved. Did you catch that? He reminds them of their belovedness. He reminds them that they're loved. And so the truth for us is when the whole world seems to be against you, you're loved. When a spouse or a friend turns against you, you're still God's beloved. And that's the power. If your heart is plugged into that power source, then it won't matter how people are treating you. You'll be able to love. When you were God's enemy, he did not harden his heart towards you. That's what mercy means. He loved you the very best when you were at your very worst. He sent his son, his eternal beloved, to be condemned for your sins so that you might be counted among the beloved. Jesus Christ became a curse for you so that you might live under God's blessing. That's our gospel. And so now what we have to do is we have to live out of the reality of that every day. And so just, just to, to finish with this, Christians, as Christians then, what we're being called to here is we're being called to behave reasonably. Reasonably, not instinctively. Look at verse 17, it says, repay no one for evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. There are instincts we have, fight or flight, but Christians don't allow their emotions to carry them away. They're thoughtful. We're thoughtful about everything, about every decision, every word, and especially in these kinds of situations because the stakes are so high. So we, what we need to do is we need to prepare in advance for the emotional hijacking that happens when there's this kind of escalation that Paul's describing so that when it happens, what we do is we stop and we think. So before you do anything else, Paul says, give thought. There's always self-control, fruit of the Spirit. Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, as Christians, we never just, we never just respond instinctually or emotionally to what's going on, but we always re- act reasonably, thinking out the implications of the gospel. But that's the way to head these things off. And so the sense of that phrase is give thought ahead of time. Be ready so that when the time comes, you won't react just in the gut moment. And that really speaks, I think, to the means of grace. If grace makes the difference, then you've got to be constantly warming the fire of your heart at the love of God. And you do that through the means of grace. You come to church like a piece of charcoal that's been set off to the side that's being put back in the middle of the fire. That's We need to be here. That's why we do this. Not because there's some rule. Hello, you with me? There's no rule that says if you don't come to church, God's going to send the locusts and destroy your house. I have a leak in my house right now. It's not because I don't, I, I'm here every week and my bathroom's leaking, okay? There's no rule. There's no rule. There, there's a, we need to be here. You with me? It's why we read the Bible daily. Not because there's a rule and we got to follow the rules because we need to be trained in grace so that when the moment comes, we're ready. One last thing. When Paul says, give thought, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. He means that the way we live in light of this is our greatest evangelistic opportunity. Christianity won the world in the first century by the way they treated their enemies. They loved those who persecuted them in such a way that the Roman world had no choice but to ask, what is this? And I wonder, does the way you live, does the way I live, does the way that we love not only the people that love us, but the way that we love people that are set against us, does the way we love force the world that is watching to just say, what in the world is this? The answer, of course, is that it's the gospel, which is the power of God for all who believe. But if I'm honest with you this morning, I would say, Lord, when it comes to this, Lord, I believe. Amen. But help my unbelief. Let's pray together. So, Father, in these closing moments this morning, 
Would you uh, come and uh, do just that? Would you, even as we sing this song of your great love for us, we know that faith and repentance are gifts, and so would you come and grace us with both faith and repentance to, to turn away from where we've been trying to warm our hearts at the fire of the love of others, where we've turned a spouse or a friend or a child into an idol and said, if I can just have their love, then everything will be okay. But instead, would you turn us towards you that we would warm our hearts at the fire of your great love for us? Because only then would we be a fire ourselves to go and to love not only those who are easy to love, but those that are hard to love, not only those that take very little effort, but even those that are dead set against us, that curse us and persecute us and, and, and work against our good. It's exactly how you've called us to live. And so we need you desperately to do this work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So there's some, uh, you know, some uh, heartburn about that song in certain circles. And I think it's just because that idea of that God's love would be reckless. But listen, to love an enemy is reckless. Uh, it's a dangerous thing. And yet, um, I think part of what stretches us with that is that we just have a hard time uh, thinking of the, the Lord's love for us. But that's part of the problem, too. Do you know the depths and the heights and the lengths and the width of his love for you? Because if you do, then you become an overflowing stream of life. Uh, that nothing can, not even evil around you can stop love from coming out of you. And that is what he's called us to be. And it's what he sends us now to be. And so as he sends us, receive this benediction, which is the promise that no matter where this week's week takes you, uh, he'll go there with you. No matter how far away you may run, he will go after you. Amen. And that is the power that you need to love. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.